Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are signs all around us in this world, and to be a functioning member of society, one must know how to read the signs. Now, I'd like a little uh, congregational participation today, if that's all right with you. Uh, we're going to conduct just a little quiz to see if you are able to read some signs. I'll show you a sign. You can let me know what it means. Here's the first one. No U-turn. That's right. So no U-turn. All right. Uh, well, let's go with the uh, second one here. What does this one mean? Yeah, curves ahead. Uh, curvy road ahead. Uh, beware. That's right. Okay, the third one here. This is an easy one. What's this one mean? Stop. Yeah, stop. That's right. Stop. Now, the next one is going to be similar to this one, uh, but you're going to need to study it for just a moment, and then I'd like you to tell me what it means. <laughs> yeah, it is stop, but then you can't turn left. You can't turn right. You can't go back. You can't go forward. I guess you just have to stay there indefinitely. Now, there are some signs in this world that you're going to need an advanced degree to understand, like this next one. All right, now, in case you can't read it, I'll read it. City, lim semi city parking limited to even number side on even number months, odd number side on odd number months, that's April through September, even number side on even number days, odd number side on odd number days, that's October through March, and then you alternate at 10 a.m. <laughs> Got it? I think if I were parking there, I would just ask for my parking ticket up front and then just leave. Reading signs, understanding signs, is an important part of life. And, and not just with street signs like these. There are all sorts of signs in this world today that, that relays information to us, helps us, guide us to where we need to be and what we need to do. And this is true in our Christian faith as well. Christians are people who read and understand signs. For instance, when Jesus was sitting outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him when all the things that he had prophesied about Jerusalem would take place. And, and they also wanted to know about when his second coming would be. So they asked him, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, You will hear wars and of rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must first take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, Jesus was telling us we should be reading the signs that are out there in this world, knowing that the end is coming but is not yet here. But we should always be ready for Jesus to return because we know neither the day nor the hour. Reading the signs was also important while Jesus was still here on earth, conducting his earthly ministry. Jesus' perpetual opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, came to Jesus one day to test him and, and to demand a sign from him, as if all the miracles and the signs that he had performed hadn't been enough. They wanted one more sign, and supposedly this one would make a difference. But Jesus knew that it wouldn't, that they would still oppose him, 
So he replied to them, he said, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, Jesus was saying if they really knew how to read the signs like they claimed they did, then they would know the sign of their time, who was Jesus. And they would know who he was and why he was there. They wouldn't need to demand from him another sign. So all of this is at the top of our minds today as we think about and hear our gospel reading from John chapter 2. And all of this is important because at the end of our reading today, John writes on this second Sunday after Epiphany, this season of revelation, this season of Jesus revealing who he is and why he's come. John writes this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Now when you see a sign, any sign, you can get lost in so many of the details, some of which may be important, but others not so much. For instance, when you see a stop sign, you could sit there and question, well, why is the shape of this sign an octagon? Why didn't they make it a hexagon? Or, or why did they use that particular shade of red? Or why that font? But if this were all that you paid attention to, you would miss the meaning of the sign and the reason why it was there in the first place. Instead, the important thing is knowing how to read the sign, what it is communicating, and then knowing what the proper response from you is. A stop sign indicates that you need to stop your car for your safety and the safety of others, and then the proper response is to do just that. Well, Jesus' miracle at the wedding in Cana is like that stop sign. It's one of the easier and, might I say, more fun miracles from Jesus in which to get lost in all the details. Again, some of which may be important, but others not so much. It's not bad to dig into the details, by the way. This is God's word, after all, and it's important for us to meditate on and be a part of and abide in God's word to understand it. And there are just so many questions we have from this relatively short passage from John's gospel. Questions like, what was Mary's role at the party that she would know about the wine? Why were Jesus and his disciples invited there? What would have been the cultural or social significance of running out of wine at the wedding? How would the bridegroom live down that embarrassment? Is that why Jesus steps in? Were Jesus' words to his mother actually more respectful in their context than it sounds like in ours? What does wine have to do with Jesus' hour, as he says? And if it wasn't Jesus' hour, why does he go ahead and do what his mother suggested? How much wine did Jesus end up making? Do the type of jars and the reason why they were used, does that have some kind of significance? Or were they simply the, the jars that were available that day? What were the servants thinking through all of this, since they and the disciples were the only ones who knew about this miracle? Did anybody ever tell the master of the feast what had happened or the bridegroom what had really happened? You see, the list of questions can go on and on, and they're all interesting. 
Now, maybe in future sermons, we could spend some time on these questions. And again, they are important to an extent. But just like trying to figure out a stop sign without first asking, what is this sign telling me? And what should my response be? Well, we need to ask the same of this sign from Jesus. And again, we return to verse 11, which says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. When you read or listen to or study John's gospel, what you'll find is that these signs that Jesus performs in John's gospel, they are not only important, as all of them are, of course, but in John's gospel, they are especially pronounced and significant. There are only seven signs in all of John's gospel that Jesus does. And of course, we recognize seven to be a, a godly number, a number of completeness. And this miracle was the first of them. And all of the signs have a way of revealing something about who Jesus is and what he was doing on this earth. This miracle in Cana reveals so much about Jesus and about his glory. First, it reveals that Jesus in his glory is obviously the Lord over all creation. John told us just a chapter earlier, and we heard this on Christmas, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word came and dwelt among us in the flesh, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word of God, the one through whom all things were made at creation. And he was bringing this creative power that he possesses now into this earth, as he so clearly demonstrates here with substances like water and wine. Second, this miracle reveals that Jesus in his glory is bringing something completely new and extraordinary to us. Jesus brings us new life, and not just some life, but abundant life. An overabundance of wine there was, choice wine, the best wine you could imagine, was provided that day. And as readers of Scripture and as Christians, we know that eventually Jesus will tie his own lifeblood to wine itself as he delivers his blood for the forgiveness of our sins through wine for his disciples and for us, for our lives, for our abundant lives. And third, this miracle reveals that Jesus in his glory intends to bring all people to his feast. As wonderful as that wedding feast must have been to attend, especially with Jesus providing for it, Scripture tells us that Jesus is planning to provide an even greater feast, a feast where he is the bridegroom and his church will be the bride. The day when we are gathered with him into eternity and there will be a feast without end and we will eat and drink with him and with one another forever. This miracle, as John says, is a glimpse, a manifestation of his glory. 
And it also points us forward to the even more glorious work that Jesus was about to do, that Jesus was sent here to do. And that's what all of these signs in John's Gospels do. They reveal who Jesus is and and why he has come, but they're also pointing us forward to the one final sign that Jesus provides, an eighth sign, so to speak. They all point forward to the moment when, as Jesus says, his hour does finally arrive, the hour for his full glory to be revealed. Now, when this world thinks about glory, when the disciples thought about glory, they must have believed that they were about to witness Jesus do something spectacular in a worldly sense. They had followed Jesus all this time. They had watched him as he completed all these wonderful miracles and signs. And now they were getting ready to see what this had all been about, what this had all been building towards, what Jesus had prepared as the great finale. But the final sign that was given was the moment when Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for our sins, to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. To all those around Jesus and to the world, this does not look like a sign of glory at all. This looks like a sign of humiliation and shame, a sign of defeat. That's what Jesus does. He takes what the world assumes is the weakest and the most foolish, and he makes it the wisest and the strongest so that we do not put our trust in ourselves, our faith in ourselves, or anything else in this world. Jesus forgave all of our sins and the sins of the entire world on the cross by his death. And when he rose again, he showed us that not even death itself would ever be able to keep us separated from the love that God has for us. And right before Jesus went to the cross, he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The hour, Jesus said, has now come. It was the hour of the cross. And when Jesus said that, our thoughts can't help but go back to our reading today in John chapter 2, when he had told his mother that his hour was not yet, and still Jesus did provide a sign that day, a sign that would point forward to this greatest sign ever given, the sign of God's undeniable, unquestionable, unending love for you and for me, the sign of the cross. And the sign of the empty grave. Jesus knew all this that day in Cana. And so he chose to offer a sign so that when his disciples would think back to that moment, they would know what it had all been about. Now we said with that example of the stop sign, not only do you have to know how to read the sign, what it's telling you, but you also need to know what is the proper response from me, How should we respond? And in this case, John tells us exactly what it should be. The disciples actually got one right this time. After seeing Jesus' first sign in Cana, John writes, The disciples believed in him. And that is the correct response. It's faith. Faith in Jesus who offers us this 
sign. At the very end of his gospel, after Jesus' death and resurrection, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So then, this is our response to the sign that Jesus provides us today through his word. We believe. And we believe not just in anything. We believe in the most important thing, the most important person. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is the very Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, including you and me, the one who brings life abundantly to you today through his word and through his body and blood provided in the meal, the one who has already set a place at his table for you at his heavenly feast, the one who died and rose again for you. This Jesus, in whom your faith rests, in whom you believe, brings you life in his name today and every day and into all eternity. Thanks be to God for allowing us to read these signs so that we may believe in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.